You know, I just mentioned about uh, fat older guys having a Speedo on going swimming. Good heavens, let's hope not. Here comes Dr. History. Good morning, Zap. <laughs> Good That's the pie we don't want to see. Oh, my goodness. Look up the word ugly in the dictionary, and you'll probably see our picture next to it. That's right. How you doing? I am fantastic. How are you? Great, great. Just uh, wanted to start out with a uh, little information about our web page. Uh, we now are represented in about 35 countries around the world. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Do you mean to tell me that Dr. History, and you can go to the site, dr-history.com, is being listened to by people in 35 countries around the world? Yes, uh, kind of amazing, from Japan to China to South Africa to Europe. Uh, and we haven't started any major problems or wars. What's that? I said, and we still have not started any major problems or wars. No, we're, we're uh, ambassadors for good. There you go. <laughs> well, now, so this today, is... Uh, we're going to talk about a guy that uh, has kind of been known for kind of good and bad, but uh, a guy by the name of Sitting Bull. Uh-oh. Now, you cannot talk about Sitting Bull without uh, bringing in uh, our good friend, General Custer. That's right, and Sitting Bull was married to his wife, Running Heifer. Yes, and here we go. <laughs> well, after the June 1876 Battle of the Little Bighorn, Americans didn't know what to think. I mean, how could the flamboyant Custer, the war hero who had become Major General at age 23 during the Civil War, the darling Indian fighter of the plains lie dead, mutilated, and bloated with his beloved 7th Cavalry on some obscure Montana slope. Yeah. Well, Americans wondered how a band of Indians could defeat one of the best equipped and supposedly best led modern armies in the world. I mean, the country was in a state of shock. Uh, the American public clamored to know what really happened on that hot, fateful day in late June when the Sioux Nation triumphed against the Cavalry. Well, the Battle of Little, Little Bighorn was arguably the most significant Native American uh, victory in history. The humiliating massacre stung pretty smartly. I mean, it wounded the national ego and unfortunately kind of hastened the inevitable destruction of the Plains Indians. Uh, the Indians were hounded uh, by a relentless army with a vendetta, an army representing the will of the people, while the Sioux, along with their northern Cheyenne allies, had certainly won the battle. Basically, they lost the war, because mm -hmm. within a few short years, a traditional way of life, along with the buffalo herds, was just a memory. Now again, getting back to Sitting Bull, the great Sioux warrior and holy man was one of the most important chiefs in our nation's history. Not only was he the leader of his band, the Hung Papa, he was the first chief elected to represent all the free-roaming Sioux, uh, sometimes referred to as the Teton Sioux. Mm -hmm. But these tribes included the Hung Papa, the Blackfoot, the Bruley, the Two Kettles, Oglala, Miniconju, and Sans Arc. So this made Sitting Bull, their leader, was a pretty much an act of supreme confidence for a people who pretty much shares personal and tribal autonomy above all else. They just, they just didn't mix together. Uh, so this was quite a compliment to Sitting Bull. Uh -huh. Well, after his Sioux warriors defeated Custer's cavalry, uh, Sitting Bull became the whipping boy for the country's accumulated frustrations. I mean, there was ridiculous stories that circulated in the press to help explain how such a catastrophe had occurred. And some thought it was impossible that an unlearned 
Savage could defeat one of West Point's finest, uh, never mind that Custer graduated last in his class. <laughs> uh, some wrote that Sitting Bull must have attended West Point incognito, where he'd learned military tactics to help him out with the U.S. Army. Uh, other observers wondered if this uh, guy had somehow trained in uh, Europe before returning to lead his tribe. And there was even speculation that the chief might have learned to read English, French, and even Latin from missionaries, and thus he was able to study books on military maneuvers in his TV by firelight. Mm. And, uh, come on, how else could he defeat the U.S. cavalry? So all these rumors, uh, which, of course, all were just rumors and false, uh, but in addition to discussions of his training as a battlefield tactician, there was speculation about how Sitting Bull actually commanded his men during Custer's last stand. Now, some argued the Sitting Bull was at the head of his braves, personally leading wave after wave against the gallant boys in blue. Others suggested he wasn't fighting at all. They argued that his braves, because of their overwhelming numbers, won the field. Uh, it had nothing to do with his leadership, even though Sitting Bull took credit for the victory. Well, much of what was written in the late 1800s is at best kind of uncertain. I mean, there's still, I've studied this quite a bit, Zeb, and there's still a lot of questions I have regarding this whole Custer battle thing and where he was and one thing or another. But anyway, to further justify and explain the defeat, uh, 19th, 19th century critics often inflated the numbers of Indians in the battle, which would make the defeat a little more bearable. Well, I mean, if the poor troopers were grossly outnumbered 10, 20, or 30 to 1, you know, you could maybe understand things a little better. But. Yeah, but let me ask you a question right there, may I? Sure. Um, it's always been kind of a burning question to me that when Custer broke away and said, wasn't it uh, he was supposed to wait for, uh, uh, what was it, Lieutenant or Captain McKeel? Or, well, who was he supposed to wait for before he made his... Benteen, and then there was, uh, let's see, uh, Crook, or, uh, yeah, uh, Crook, I believe was the other one. Yeah. But, but he didn't. And, uh... But he still had scouts, and he had a lot of uh, uh, paid scouts for his part of the army. Why couldn't they or didn't they observe that these Indians, they couldn't be just all hiding underneath a tree. I mean, they were all around, and the scouts never picked up any sign? They did. They actually did. And they warned Custer about this. He just still felt like he could take on the whole Sioux Nation. Hmm. He just, uh, I don't know if you want to call it ego or whatever you want to call it, but he figured that uh, with his crew, he could he could take them and, and pretty well do it by himself. Hmm, that so. sounds like with a pen and a phone, Obama. <laughs> That's right. But you know, Longfellow, the poet uh, uh, of his day, he had, uh, he pictured Sitting Bull cleverly waiting in ambush and mounting an attack with 3,000 braves. Uh, never mind that the 7th Cavalry attacked the Sioux camp first. Uh, so it's not surprising that a great deal of the fiction surrounding Sitting Bull and the Battle of the Little Bighorn was carried into our day, into the 20th century, 21st century. But uh, in order to understand Sitting Bull as a political figure and a man, we must understand the events that were affecting his people. Now, Sitting Bull viewed himself as his people's uh, shield in a pretty much a confusing and threatening time. Now, as a warrior and later as a chief, Sitting Bull exemplified all of the virtues of his religion. 
These included bravery, uh, fortitude, he showed dignity when enduring pain, generosity, wisdom. Uh, that Sitting Bull was brave as a matter of record. I mean, he had over 63 documented coups. And you know what a coup is. Mm-hmm. They're able to touch your enemy uh, without actually killing him. And his prowess as a warrior among his people was legendary. So there was no question he, he was a great man. In fact, on one occasion, to show his medicine was strong during a heated battle with the cavalry, uh, different battles, Sitting Bull invited several warriors to smoke with him in the face of death. So, taking his pipe and tobacco pack, he walked pouch, he walked directly into the line of fire, bullets flying all around. He sat on the ground, lit his pipe, and passed it to some of his uh, understandably nervous associates. All the while, bullets whizzed about the smoker's heads, and finally he tapped out the burnt tobacco and carefully cleaned the bowl with a twig. While the other braves ran back to where the Sioux had taken shelter, Sitting Bull calmly stood up and calmly walked back to his people with, again, bullets kicking up dust all around him. And that's just one example of his bravery. You know, let me interrupt you right there, and we have a quick caller with a question. And caller, we have limited time. Make it a short question. Go ahead, please. Okay, I think you're correct. Saying that it was Reno and uh, that other guy that broke away or were told to leave the, the columns and wait for Cook. So it was uh, Custer's fault for splitting these forces. Absolutely. Exactly. All right, Al, thank you. And uh, Dr. History, go ahead and respond, please. Okay, and that's exactly right. It was uh, a tactical error on Custer's part in on many uh, accounts, really. Mm-hmm. So, but again, uh, getting back to, to Sitting Bull, he was wounded on a number of occasions. He endured without complaint. He was also a frequent participant in what they called the religious sun dance ceremony in which braves endured self-torture to earn the favor of the gods. Uh, he was selfless and generous to a fault. Uh, he would give away possessions. He would share his food with any who were hungry or needy. In fact, uh, after the Battle of Powder River in 1876, the Northern Cheyenne had lost most of their possessions, including their food, lodges, bedding. Well, when the destitute band arrived at Sitting Bull's camp, he had a number of lodges prepared prepared for the cold, starving people. Pot after pot of meat was put on to boil, so there uh, would be a great welcoming feast. Then, under his instructions, the Sioux replenished the Cheyenne by giving them presents. Uh, they were welcome for as long as they wished to stay. Uh, in fact, a chief, uh, a Cheyenne chief named uh, Woodenleg said, Oh, what a heart. I will never forget Sitting Bull. So, again, these were uh, tribes that typically could have fought each other at one time, and uh, the Sitting Bull took them right under his wing. Yeah, but you know, I think you'll agree with me that I don't care if we're talking about Indians here in this country in the Old West, or if we're talking about something that took place in Europe or during the Roman Empire. In all people, in all groups of people, I still maintain there was a sense of humanity that many great leaders, they showed that humanity and that caring. I think, yes, I agree with you there. Uh, and again, Sitting Bull was, was an amazing man, and uh, everything I've read about him, I, I uh, place him as one of the greatest uh, leaders in our country. Mm-hmm. But, and again, he was the first and last leader of the free-roaming Sioux tribe, this group of tribes that came together. Now, he never understood how some of the other guys, uh, Spotted Tail and Red Cloud, could sell out to the whites. And so he refused uh, to sign anything. He refused to text the pen to the paper. 
uh, agreeing with Crazy Horse that one does not sell the land upon which the people live. Mm-hmm. Well, Symbol, if we go back, he was probably born about 1831. He hunted his first buffalo at the uh, tender age of 10. He counted coup in a heated battle with the Crow Brave when he was just 14 years old. Mm. Uh, and he was always at the front of the fighting. And again, showing his bravery from a very young age. Well, by the early 1870s, the Sioux were furious at how often the United States government had broken its word. And we've read about this time and time again, uh, where treaties are broken. And each year brought more and more white men to the territories. So, in fact, the Treaty of 1868 was made worthless when thousands of miners invaded the sacred Black Hills in 1874. And, of course, they ripped up the land. They were looking for gold. They were logging timber, they were damming streams, making roads, building towns, and this was an area that was supposed to be under a treaty. And then the other thing is that the Indians really hated the railroad, the iron horse. And most troubling was the serious reduction in the buffalo herds. And, you know, we've read time and time again about the uh, mass uh, uh, murdering or killing of the buffalo for their hides. Right. And, of course, reservation life wasn't what the white men said it would be. Uh, you had bad Indian agents that would uh, basically starve the Indians and keep their supplies. Well, in 1875, under the direction of President Grant, General Sherman, and General Sheridan, the U.S. Army decided to make one giant military push to finally bring the free-roaming tribes, which are these are the guys that are not on the reservation, into submission. Well, they were aware that the United States had broken the treaty on a number of occasions. However, that, that didn't seem to matter to them. They argued that the free-roaming Sioux had sent war parties around the edges of the land and had committed acts of war, which made it necessary to make war in return. But anyway, well, Washington then proclaimed that any Indian not on the reservation by January 31st, 1876, would be considered hostile and dealt with accordingly. So in the late spring of 1876, General Terry and General Crook, under the direction of President Grant and General Sherman and Sheridan, set out to crush the offending Indians once and for all and make the Black Hills safe for democracy, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the year, the tribes were broken down into smaller uh, bands, but in early summer, the Sioux, along with their northern Cheyenne and a few Arapaho allies, met for an annual celebration. And this was a great time, a time for family reunions, renewing friendships, weddings, buffalo hunting, and also a time for this annual fun dance and other religious ceremonies. Well, this year the tribes stayed together longer than usual, knowing there was safety in numbers with so many soldiers on the loose. And additionally, their numbers had swollen because all the hunting parties had returned. And most important, uh, the reservation Indians had joined the free-roaming tribes at this time. So the population doubled. Now, uh, we talked a a minute ago, Custer felt comfortable with the 7th Cavalry's forces, which amounted to about 566 enlisted men, 31 officers, and about 35 Indian scouts. And as I mentioned, he'd once boasted that with the 7th, he could lick the entire Sioux Nation. Mm-hmm. Well, he had never encountered a group as large as the one he'd find that June day. In fact, just before attacking, he divided his command into, as we mentioned, into three parts and charged the Indian camp. Um, now, Custer might have done things different if he'd known what he was really up against. And again, as I mentioned, his scouts had tried to tell him how large this group was, but they were ignored. And when the general finally realized his mistake, he, he must have been a little shocked. I mean, here was a thousand Indian lodges, and this would make the population of the camp more than 7,000 with about 1,800 to 2,000 
2,200 warriors. So the soldiers were now numbered roughly about three to one as they attacked the Sioux. Right. Now, war between Indians was based on kind of a loose set of rules, but war with the whites was different. I mean, here was an invading, hostile force. The Braves weren't fighting just for honor. Braves were fighting to save their homeland, their women, their children. Their sacred camp circle had been invaded. So we know from numerous tribal accounts that Sitting Bull had foreseen the attack on his people. Now, up to that point, Sitting Bull's part in this drama had been basically kind of a spiritual thing. Uh, he was invoking God's will for his people. Now, he had actually seen a vision, uh, warned his people, and gave flesh, which means he there was a ceremony where they would actually gouge flesh out of their arms as part of this uh, ceremony. Um, and at 45 years old, he was considered an old man, and he was not expected to be an active warrior. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, some of the other uh, accounts that say he was leading the battle really are probably not true. So, anyway, when the Battle of the Little Breghorn occurred, his arms were recovering, but he was hardly in any kind of uh, uh, form to be fighting. Uh, and his duty was to pray and encourage the Braves. Mm -hmm. And his good friend and strongest ally, Crazy Horse, was a very capable warrior, war leader. So, again, his most important job was to protect the women and the children. Well, so when everything was said and done after the aftermath of this terrific battle, uh, the American press created a picture of Sitting Bull as a villain on the plains. After being hounded and starved and after taking his people to Canada for four years, uh, up there he hoped to find a home in what he referred to as the grandmother's land, which was his name for Queen Victoria. Mm -hmm. uh, Sitting Bull, the last of the Sioux chiefs, surrendered his rifle in 1881. He was held as a prisoner at Fort Randall for two years before he was allowed to return to a place called Stand Rock. But he was never a broken man. Still the lance and shield of his people, he fought for them until he was murdered just before the massacre at Wounded Knee. Oh, my. And no. that's the story of Sitting Bull. And again, uh, authors and people have speculated over the years, good or bad. And my feeling about the man is that he was trying to protect his people his land, his, uh, his way of life. Yes. Now, do you have any idea, or is there any historical depiction? Was the was Sitting Bull a big man, an average-sized man, a little man? You know, some of the chiefs, surprisingly, uh, even with the big names, they were not big people in stature. Right. And I have not read anywhere that I can recall that actually describes uh, how big he was. Now, I've got a picture of him. Uh, in front of me, but he's sitting down, and mm -hmm. uh, he's got a single uh, feather in his head, uh, the long braids, the, right. the, uh, uh, a peace pipe uh, or a pipe in his lap. Uh, but again, I I really can't tell you. He doesn't look, you know, I can't tell that he looks uh, small or large. Well, let's let's do this real quick. I want to remind everybody if you want to tune in and hear any one of the many, many, literally over a hundred. Uh, episodes of Dr. History. All you have to do is go to dr-history.com dr-history.com and I have a quick question for you. Short answer because I'm almost out of time. Tribes. Let's talk sometime maybe next week about tribes and the formation of tribes and the difference in opinion, the difference in attitude and the difference in politics of Indian tribes. Okay. I'll see what I can, I'll see what I can find. Uh, 
There was actually a, a show on TV, a documentary a few years ago called 500 Nations. Yeah. And that was excellent. I think it was Kevin Costner that narrated that. Uh, and I actually have the book uh, of that, 500 Nations. Okay. So I'll, I'll see what I can come up with for next week. Well, now that you're retired and living the life of leisure in your geezer chair, I will look forward to next Tuesday. All right, you have a good day, Zab. All right, buddy, thanks an awful lot. Dr. Ken Turner, alias Dr. History. And don't forget, dr-history.com. You can listen to those shows anytime.